Radio Maria England presents Introduction to the Prayer of the Church Presented by Father Ewan Marley From the Dominicans in Cambridge at Blackfriars Midday prayer in the Church of is perhaps a misnomer because there are three different types of prayer that can be called midday prayer or three times. There's terse, there's sext, there's known. That refers in the old language to the third hour, the sixth hour and the ninth hour, which in fact was 9am, noon, 12pm and 3pm. In practice, most people will do one of those three and they usually try to do it in the middle of the day, day so midday prayer is not such a bad title, but any one of the three would do, or ideally all three. Very short prayer, it's a couple of psalms, a reading, and a concluding prayer written by members of the church. However, it has significance because being in the middle of the day, it's the hardest time to arrange prayer, there's that practical difficulty. It's also a prayer which is liable to be public if you do it yourself because you may be at work or outside. It's a prayer too which people may attend because it's the time when they're in town or near a monastery or near a cathedral or a church where prayer is said. So one of the questions of midday prayer is whether you would commit yourself to it to the extent of being public in your faith. There's another deeper reasons of why midday prayer is important. For one thing, there's a phrase known to people who study spirituality, especially monastic spirituality, which is the noonday devil, the devil of the noon, the midday. This goes back to the fathers of the church, the desert fathers. The noonday devil is the great threat to living a religious life all day the middle of the day. The technical term is Acadia, or Acedia in English. Acedia means basically not caring, stopping caring. And it is a phrase which refers to that fact that halfway through things, life gets difficult. There's a reference in the psalm to the noonday devil. If you think of the logic of noonday, it's a bit like the middle of any great undertaking, that the middle bit is when we start to get tired, we falter. If you run a marathon, you feel that there's a point when you're hitting what's called the wall. You think, this is getting too hard, I can't go any further. This is just becoming harder and harder, more and more painful, more more effort. How can I keep going? And then you get past that wall, you get past that point and say, okay, now I can go on. I'm past the midway to- point, so less to go than ahead of me than there is before me. It's a psychological thing. An interesting study of cyclists, anyone who goes out for a cycle ride often experiences this, that if you go somewhere and come back, you feel you come faster coming back, it seems quicker. But in fact, studies show they're not really quicker at all, it just feels quicker. 
There's something about winding down, returning is easy, but going up to the top, going up to the peak, is hard. And so the midday prayer can be quite challenging to do it well. It's very easy to do that on autopilot if you're somebody who has a commitment, like a monk or a nun. Very easy to think of it as just a short prayer to get over fast. Right, so it's saying something about the task of a day. We begin at the beginning of the day, and it's fine, we're up in the morning, we may not enjoy getting up, but once we're up, ready, bright and bushy to greet the day. At night we can feel the latch things are over, but in the middle of the day, it's quite hard. And it breaks up the day, we may want to stick to what we're doing. We don't like being interrupted, but then that's what prayer's meant to do, is to interrupt our life, to remind us that our daily life is not the whole thing. And it's a symbol not just of the day, but of our life, the way our life is. The great Christian prayer, the great Christian poetry rather, which is a sort of prayer, I suppose, uh, Dante's Divina Commedia, where Dante imagines himself passing through hell and purgatory, and then have a vision of paradise, begins in the first line, Nel messo del camin de nostra vita, in the middle of the journey of our life. A lot of speculation about why he says that. Uh, is it because his life was halfway through, was he, in the middle age? Well, yes, but it doesn't say my life, it says our life. The journey of our life. No, it's not quite in the middle. There is always, I think, a point in someone's life when they have to decide what they will do. Sometimes they think, well, I'll carry on doing what I have been doing. But there's studies that show that people often, when they're about 30, early 30s, either decide to continue with what the life they have or decide to change, make a radical change, try some new way of living, some new job. That middle point is a point where we make decisions. How are we to live? What should we do? Have we been going in the right way? Can we change? So it's not just the middle of the day, it's the middle of our life, the midday prayer. And it means that we really ask the big questions in the middle of the day. Will we change? What have we been doing? How have we, have we been living? What has our life been for? And if the answer is, I've not been living well, I've not been living the way I want to, then I change. Of course, you might not change for the better. People can go wrong in middle life. That's why you get people dedicated to a way of life suddenly walk out on it. And perhaps a good way of life, perhaps they abandon religious life, vows, perhaps they abandon a job which is more service of others than benefit for yourself, perhaps they decide to make money or gain power. But then, people like that probably just have been living their life without thinking. They're just doing these things automatically. Most people, if they stop and think about their lives, will decide that there's something I should change and should change it for the good, to be a better person. 
If they reflect on their life, that's what they will do. They think about what's to come. The noonday devil then. The noonday devil then is something you may be afraid of. You may feel that this is something which is too much of a challenge. Caria. You may start to feel you're not caring. You may start to feel that the things that you thought were so important aren't important. Things you love doing, you may feel just don't count. You may feel a great distaste for things. You might feel, what's the point? But actually, although these are not something we'd wish to endure, it's not a good thing to sort of feel that doubt. The truth is, when we feel the doubt, then we have a chance to renew, to begin again. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength, says the psalm. New things, which very often means just doing the same old thing, but doing it better. And being committed, not thinking, well, I drifted into this, so it's not what I want to do. You might say, well, it's what I am doing. I don't need to change what I'm doing. I do need to change how I do it and why I do it and what it's for. I need to believe and hope. I need to keep going. So midday prayer, in fact, does have that powerful meaning for us. It represents that middle of the day, the middle of the week, the middle of our life, and even the middle of history. Because that happens too in history. It's not just individuals. There are cultures that start to doubt what they're about. There are countries that lose sight of what they're supposed to believe in. There are countries that make radical changes, as we see in history. That often comes because they don't stand the ordinaries of life. There's so many great evils in the world come from people who are just frankly bored. They want to do something exciting, even though it's really not something that's rational or safe, which is destructive. Just throw everything apart. Kick the traces away. It's another trace from the Bible. Traces meaning the belt, the, the harness of an animal. You might think, take this away and then I'll be free. But the guidance of God isn't like that. The guidance of God isn't simply keeping an animal in a har harness. The guidance of God is leading us to become what we are to be. So I say these small midday prayers which may seem trivial or important actually very challenging and very important as a symbol of that need either to change or better to be what we can be more fully to embrace our life to say this is my life now I will live it I'll stop being resentful I'll stop complaining because I can't do everything I didn't get everything I wanted doing so we might lose what we do have There's another aspect of midday prayer which is largely monastic, but um, I think worthwhile remembering too. In the middle of our life, the journey of our life, as Dante says, we become aware not just of the ways we haven't lived our life, but we also become aware of death. 
I mean, halfway through life, then death starts to become nearer to you than birth. There's a lot more behind you than is ahead of you in terms of time. Though nobody knows how long they'll live. thing is that in monasteries they often incorporate the prayer for the dead into their midday prayer just before lunch you see it like the great monastery of Salem in France if you go there and indeed we do this as Dominicans my order if you go to Salem and you join them for lunch the first thing you'll do is stand in the cloister outside of the refectory which is where the food is served you'll say midday prayer but also prayers for the dead particularly Monks of the Order. And you might find this a little alarming, but very often in these monasteries, you will be standing on the graves of the monks. That sounds strange, doesn't it, that you'd actually be standing on top of the graves in the cloister and waiting for lunch. But that was, in fact, that's quite common in monasteries. It was actually a Christian thing not to be afraid of dead bodies to the extent that you might walk on the graves. Now, you could ask, isn't that really against uh, Christian piety to be disregarding graves? Well, obviously in a cemetery, being soil, you wouldn't walk on the graves because you're going to disturb the soil. If you disturb the soil, it's going to ruin the grave. So, no, don't do that. The graves in the monasteries are flagstones or stones. And they're there to say something important. They say, firstly, of course, you shouldn't be afraid of the dead or dead bodies because these bodies will rise again. They will be raised by the God's Holy Spirit at the end of time. However, there's a, another more immediate symbol. It goes with sort of things St. Dominic, the founder of my order, the Dominican order, said he wished to be buried and under the feet of his brethren meaning they would walk on top of his grave. So he'd be a support, he'd be a foundation. He'd be beneath them, as he is behind them in time. St. Paul, so Pope Paul, uh, Pope St. Paul, uh, also has to be buried in the ground under a slab. The other popes are usually buried in stone tombs. I think his idea of so he too would have this symbolic idea of being beneath you. If you consider the symbol there, it's saying, well, I come before you, I die, and my life is for you now. And I support you as you go on in your life. That's exactly what the past is. The past is the ground in which we walk. There'd be much consideration in this year on how we relate to our past. Always attack on statues, desire to erodes some of the past, some of the memories. That's a complex issue, but fundamentally the past is the ground we stand on, whether we like it or not. We are where we are, we stand where we are, because the past is what's our foundation. Mostly the past is opaque. 
history can cast some light on the past, but then every historian has to specialise and most of us don't have time to study history in any depth. So most of the past is forgotten, unknown to us, hidden, dark. But we do know that we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for those who came ahead of us. And they've brought us as far as we are can be, whether we're gaining from their virtue or very often their vice, their dishonesty, which may have brought wealth to certain countries against other countries. Great wars fought, great immoralities, also great sacrifices made by the people of the past. And that's not changeable. It's what we stand on. That's the floor, the foundation of our life. That's the ground we stand on, whether we choose to or not. So there's quite a powerful symbol in praying for the dead in the cloister. You pray for the dead, which, as I say in some monasteries, you are literally standing on top of. And you pray for them that their sins may be forgiven, that they may enter into heaven, and that their souls, therefore, may be freed from the sins of their past. Also, the virtues of their life may be our virtue and our gain. The grace that they gathered in their life, the grace of God that they were given, may be for us. And so after that you eat. And even though monasteries tend to eat in silence, not very many monasteries nowadays, but some of them, eating is a sort of celebration. It's also something we do because we have to renew our energy halfway through the day. You've worked in the morning, prayed in the morning, and then come the middle of the day, you need food to carry on. So food, prayer for the dead, midday prayer, the middle of the day, the middle of life, these all come together. Which is why midday prayer is a combination of regret, regret for the past, also hope, hope for the future. That's what hope is, the virtue that relates us to the future, the virtue that says go forward. No matter how many bad things have happened in the past, no matter how much has failed in the past, no matter how much has been lost, we go to the future because that's where we belong. Now to those things out of the past, good and bad alike, that God will go draw good things, bring good things that we have not yet experienced, things we do not expect. So hope itself is, although a virtue which relates us to the future, has something to do with the past because it's accepting the past, it's acknowledging the things that cannot be changed. Also saying these things that we cannot change in the past, these things that are behind us, are part of the future which to come. When we look forward, we should never choose to do evil, we should never consider evil. We should avoid evil in every way we can. But looking back, we have to accept, well, evil has been done. And we can't change that, we can't take that away. But we don't need to. We certainly don't need to do things that you can't do. What we have to do is acknowledge that somehow out of those evils, good things will come. That's the history of life, that's the way it's been. So much of our life is shaped by the past, the countries we're born in, the places we belong to, the languages we speak when we are born and brought up in a place, the opportunities we have or don't have, the wealth we may have or the poverty. But we have to start from where we are, we start from here and now. And we shouldn't forget the past, we shouldn't simply blind ourselves to the fact that there are things before us, the lives of the many who have lived before us that are shaping our life now. We shouldn't deny that, we should acknowledge it, but not in a way that leaves us unable to let go of that past, not in a way that makes us unable to go forward. Future, of course, is unknown to us. One of the things I like to say to people is ask them why the Hebrew word for the future is actually the word for behind, whereas the Hebrew word for the past is the word that means ahead of us, in front of us. That's not the way we think about time, certainly not in the Western world, but there is actually a logic. The reason they say that is because we can't see the future, but we can see the past. So the past is in front of us. It's not where we're going. The future is where we're going, but the future is hidden. And being hidden... We can't 
be sure what will happen, but we can look into the past and see that the past which has led us to where we are can lead us forward. Prophet Jeremiah has that passage where he says, look at the past, see what path you trod and where it led you. And I think also as Christians we look back into the past and we see in the past, but also very much in the present and in the future, we see Christ. The Mass that we celebrate looks back to the Last Supper, brings the Last Supper to us, the offering. And it's almost like Christ is looking forward on our behalf. We look back at Christ who looks forward into our future. Like children walking backwards, looking at their parents and their parents saying, keep going, it'll be okay, you won't fall. You can do this. Just trust me, I can see where you're going, even if you can't. That too is part of the purpose of midday prayer, or that sense of midday. Noonday devil makes us despair of the future, makes us feel we can't go on. The noonday devil says, well, I care. Makes us want to stop feeling anything. Makes us want to give up, or to do things at least in a very dull, apathetic way. Do what we have to, but no more than what we have to. But then that's because we're trying to look to the future as if it's something we can imagine. But we can't imagine the future. We can't begin to imagine what to be. Life is always full of surprises and not always pleasant surprises. You consider this year behind us and the year we're still living. Consider how no one really foresaw that there would be this massive epidemic. Looking at some of the Christmas special magazines, 2019, all talking about what they thought would happen in 2020. And quite reasonably, none of them suspected that there would be this pandemic, this extraordinary event. You could say, well, surely, since there have been epidemics in the past, we should know that. But, well, we know someday, but we don't know when. And I wouldn't blame anybody who didn't predict what 2020 would be like. Very hard year. And a year two of many tragedies for many people. And yet, the unpredictability of these things is what gives us hope, because there are great good things to come too. And out of this pandemic will come advances, we can be sure of that. We can be sure that good will come, because God draws good out of evil. That's the only reason he permits evil. And he permits evil because he wishes to bring out these greater goods that could not be without evil. Not that he needs evil. God can create a good creation with no evil, which will still be wonderful and fine. He's chosen the evil that we have chosen with him. But the story of Adam and Eve means at some point we chose this life as a humanity, as a people. At some point we would rather have the struggle. Don't know how, not exactly how. But somewhere we said no to God, no to the easy way. And yet in choosing the hard way, God has found greater goods that would not have been without the choice against him. The great paradox of Christianity. Just as the death of Christ itself was a great evil. The great evil which was prepared for had a purpose, and in that evil, good came. So I'll finish this section by reading from the 91st Psalm. A great psalm about how God brings us through evil, and yet at the end the psalm ends in great triumph, the new things to come, what he will do. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions under his wings you will find refuge. 
His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. That, I should say, is where the noonday devil phrase comes from in the Psalms. I might also say, you see how that, that line encompasses the whole of the day, night, day, noonday. Noonday looking back at the night, the terror of the night, daytime looking forward. The psalm then continues, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but they will not come near you. you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the most high, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. He will command his angels concerning him to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Because he hold fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will whiff him in trouble, I will rescue him and honour him. Long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, as I said earlier in other talks, the psalms here have to be understood as meaning more than they say. Of course, we will endure illness. Of course, we may fall in battle. If you're young, great evils may come upon you, but the great, greatest evils, the evils of the soul, the terrors of the spirit, from these we are protected by God's grace. And though the psalm ends with what sounds like a very earthly claim, with long life I will satisfy him, of course we seek greater than that, we seek eternal life. That's how the psalms teach us to go beyond ourselves. We can't imagine eternal life, but we can imagine earthly things, and we can imagine that there are greater than earthly things. And these are the things God has promised to those who love him. Thank you for joining us for Introduction to the Prayer of the Church, presented by Father Ewan, a Dominican priest at Blackfriars in Cambridge. You can listen to this as a podcast on many podcast providers, and also on our website at radiomariaengland.uk.